Our gracious Father, even though it doesn't really feel like Christmas to me yet, I'm grateful that we can celebrate your son every day. For the day he was born, the life that he lived, the example that he gives us in the Gospels, his death and resurrection, they are the celebration of our lives. And to reserve it for one or two days a year would be foolish of us. So I pray, Father, no matter what the day is, no matter how we feel about it, help us, God, to celebrate you and all you've done for us, all you're doing for us, all you've promised to do. As we look in your word, we pray for your grace and your guidance. May your spirit teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty. Chapter 2, we mostly focused, last week we mostly focused on Elijah. Right, chapter 1, we saw Ahaziah, who just really didn't do much. At least he didn't do anything good. Then we see Elijah taken up to heaven. And then Elisha taking up the mantle as the prophet to Israel. And uh, just for context, we'll read the last three verses of chapter 2. Then he, this is speaking of Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came out of the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. It really has nothing to do with the context of chapter 3. I just really like those three verses, and I wanted to read them again. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel. Remember, Ahaziah was his brother, um, but Ahaziah had no son, so... Ahaziah's younger brother, Jehoram, took over the throne when, Ahara, when his brother Ahaziah died. Uh, so he became king over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Did a little better than his brother. Because, um, he, yeah, he died after two. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Shocker! Anybody see that coming? But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, That his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So he's he's a little better, a little better than Ahab, a little better than his mother. It kind of shows you uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Depth? Depth of their depravity. I was more thinking of the, the, the scope the scope of Jezebel's influence that, I mean, there's not a lot of queen mothers that are mentioned in scripture. We're going to get to another one who's a piece of work too, Athaliah, but that's later on. Um, There's not a lot of queen mothers though that are mentioned. You know, he did evil and he did evil in the sight of God like his father, but not as bad as his father and mother. So that kind of fascinates me. It just, it just shows the horrible influence she had over her husband and her kids and the whole nation. Um, 
But he wasn't quite as bad, right? He continued in the, sun, the sins of Jeroboam, which were the golden calves that Jeroboam had made. However, he got rid of the altar to Baal that his father had made. So I, that's interesting. I'm not sure what motivated him to get rid of one false god, but keep another. Um, do what you want with that. Verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now, we read about that back in chapter 1. If you recall, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And so that rebellion took place. And now, uh, as we're about to read, um, Jehoram's going to try to get it back. So verse 6, so King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Now, I'm not sure what putting a condiment on people is going to do when it comes to fighting a battle. Maybe it would make them slippery. Maybe it was good camouflage. But for whatever reason, he mustered all of Israel. You're welcome. That one was free. <laughs> Verse 7. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. He said the same thing to Ahab. Um, then he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. This was actually um, unnecessary. They did not have to walk that way. Uh, where they were going, where they're going to end up meeting them in battle, uh, which, boy, you know, I think I'd be more organized in this. Uh... Some sort of valley. Yeah, we'll read about it later. Um, <laughs> it was only about a day or so walk. But they took seven days to go around. Now, the advantage of that is that the king of Edom joins them for the battle. Apparently, he didn't like Moab either. Um, the downside of that is they did not bring enough provision to go that far. And so uh, we get there at the end of verse 9. They, they don't have any water. Right? For the animals that followed them or for the men. And, and you know, I'm telling you, and mustard makes you thirsty because it's so salty. These guys are in trouble. So the king of Israel, I already read that, verse 10. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. At least he's, you know, not dramatic like his father was. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's just a fancy way of saying that he was his servant. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, 
Surely, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I wouldn't even look at you, nor see you. But now, bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree, and stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning, when the grain offering was offered, that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. So really interesting, right? You have this poor king of Moab who was regularly paying tribute. Poor king, um, right? He was, he was a pagan king. Um, but 100,000 lambs, and then the wool of 100,000 rams. I wouldn't want to be the person that counted that. Lamb number one, lamb number two, lamb number 80. Yeah, right, you'd fall asleep. Lamb number 84,936. Was that right? Oh, I got to start over. I, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing they didn't count. They probably said this many lambs is about 100,000. Send them to the king. Um, but they decide, right? Uh, um, Jehoram decides he's going to try to get Moab back under their control. Jehoshaphat agrees to go with him, right? You are as I, just like he said to Ahab. And when they run out of water, right? When they meet the, a challenge, I like the two different responses, right? Because response number one from the king of Israel who had abandoned the worship of Jehovah, he says, oh, we're all going to die. The king of Moab's going to kill us. Hopeless. And Jehoshaphat goes, you know what? I got an idea. Why don't we seek the Lord? Is there a prophet around here that we can go talk to? And I love that that is Jehoshaphat's first response Whenever he needs wisdom or guidance, it's to seek the Lord. This is the second time we've seen that, uh, just in the last few chapters, uh, at the end of 1 Kings and now into 2 Kings. And Matthew 6.33 tells us, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I think so often, we try to get all these things added unto us, and then we seek the Lord, wanting him to bless it instead of seeking the Lord and letting him add unto us those things that we need. Now Elisha called the servant of Elijah, right, the washing of the feet, or washing of his hands. Um, and Jehoshaphat knows that the word of the Lord is with him. So we're not given the time frame between chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, but it was enough time that even Jehoshaphat down in Judah knew that Elisha was a true prophet. Because remember, Elisha was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So word about him was spreading. Um, and so they go down and Elisha looks at the king of Israel uh, and he goes, what are you doing here? Why don't you go ask the gods of your father and your mother? Why don't you go seek them and let them tell you what to do? Oh no, but you don't understand. We're all going to die. 
And he looks back at him and he says, you know, as, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, which is a beautiful statement, by the way, um, recognizing that we serve a living God and that we do stand before him. He says, if it wasn't Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you, let alone answer, right? Talking, I would, no, talking wouldn't even be an issue. I wouldn't even look at you. Now, bring me a musician. And so they do. And uh, I find that really fascinating. Uh, personally, I think there's something about music. Okay, not all music. But there's something about music um, that can help us focus. It can help us call, uh, concentrate. It can help us calm down. Um, there's also, and this I find really cool, a connection throughout the Old Testament uh, between music and the anointing of God. And I'll give you uh, another really good example is David playing the harp for Saul. Now, Saul had a distressing spirit from the Lord because the Holy Spirit had departed from him. But David came and played, and the anointing of God was upon David as he played to relieve Saul of the distressing spirit. Um, so I'm not going to make more of that than, than is there, but it's an interesting observation. The connection between music and the anointing of God um, throughout the word. So the word of God comes to him. And I love the word of God here. He goes, you know what? Go dig some ditches. You're not going to see wind. There's not going to be rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water. Enough for all your animals to drink. And this is a simple matter. And by the way, he's also going to deliver Moab. So the word, make ditches. God will provide miraculously. This isn't even going to be hard, and your victory is going to be complete. I don't know his tone of voice, but there's part of me that kind of thinks he said it like, all right, God will give you water. God will take care of the Moabites. Now leave me alone. <laughs> I know. It feels grumpy to me. I don't know. I, I, this, this is just me. Uh, but it feels grumpy to me. And I like the phrase, though, this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. The, the, the phrase there in Hebrew means that it's easy, trifling, light, or small. It's nothing. It's nothing. So our son is getting a, a ride to the airport. And um, he was asking around folks at church and uh, wanted to see if anybody might be able to give him a ride. And one of his friends said, well, yeah, I, I can give you a ride because I'm already giving so-and-so a ride. Right? And, and so at, at that moment, you're like, well, whether you give me a ride or not, which is a good thing, right? But you're going to the airport either way. You know, don't, don't trouble yourself just for me. Or that idea that, you know, I, if it was hard, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> right? But it was easy, so I'll gladly do it. This isn't easy. It's nothing. It's like breathing to him. And while he's talking about a very specific matter, I don't think there is a matter in the universe that's not the same with one exception. I think the only thing that was ever difficult for him was the cross, which what else would it be other than horrific and, and horrible and, and all of that? But you, know, you go all the way back to creation in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. 
You know, scientists to this day still can't explain what light is. They can measure it. They can see how fast it moves. They can, they've discovered the various spectrums of it, but they still don't actually know what it is. And you know what God did? He goes, light. And there was light. Huh? Sun, moon, stars, earth, oceans. I mean, how many, it's got to be billions when you consider human beings, animals, birds, fish, bugs, so on and so forth, of, of, of creatures that live on this earth. And he created them all like that. And, and you look at that and you're like, huh? How? I was noticing, uh, <laughs> this is a bad example, but I was noticing two of my songs sounded a lot alike tonight. Probably not going to sing those two together again. But that's beside the point, right? You just sing them on different Sundays, nobody will know. Because my imagination is limited. His is not. His imagination isn't limited. And it's not, it's not like he sat up there and thought about it. I don't know, I'm going on a little tangent here, but, but it's not like he sat up there and thought about it. Well, man, we need, we need 8,000 more bugs. What should I do? He didn't do that. I saw a great cartoon the other day where they were, you know, there's a scene in heaven and this angel shows God a corgi. And God goes, oh, I love it. I love it. What is it? And he goes, well, you know, we call it a dog. Oh, that's wonderful. Let's put it on earth. And, and the, the angel goes, well, we can't. The dinosaurs and the dog, they won't get along. And the next thing you see, a meteor heading towards Earth. <laughs> you know, the idea, he wanted to wipe out the dinosaurs so he could put the corgi on Earth. Um, we'll, we'll ignore the fact that corgis are horrible mutations of a wolf. <laughs> you know, but they are cute. They are cute. But I, I, I just think about that. And I don't think we think about it enough. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth proclaims his handiwork. We don't... I think if we could understand, you know, 1% of what he actually did when he created, our minds would liquefy and leak out our ears. Let alone 100% of it. That's why the Bible says in the beginning God created. He doesn't tell us how, other than he spoke it into existence. But you have to, oh my goodness, I promise we'll move forward here in a moment. I was talking to, um, I was actually talking to my tattoo artist. Um, and, and one of the things that was really interesting, I've been witnessing to this gentleman for a while. And uh, one of the things we, we started talking about are the, the laws of physics that govern the universe. And, and, you know, and he actually brought it up and he said, there, there has to be a God. He was like, it never have happened on accident. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Let me tell you about him, <laughs> you know. But when you think about that, right, scientists go, oh, we've discovered the laws of physics because God allowed you to. And even what you've discovered, you barely understand. We know there's gravity. We know that something comes up, goes up, it's going to come back down. We get the idea that gravity works because we're flying around the sun and we're spinning around at 24,000 miles an hour. 
right? Or do we spin at 1,000 miles an hour and we're traveling 24,000? I don't remember. Whatever the case, right? They know all of that, but how did it start? Couldn't have been an accident. The oceans would have floated away. How did our atmosphere come to being? Right? Without the atmosphere, the oceans would boil and disappear. Life would be impossible. How did the water cycle begin? Ocean evaporates, turns into a cloud. Cloud moves inland, dumps water or snow on the world, runs into the rivers. Rivers run back into the sea where it can evaporate and turn into a cloud again. Huh? The Bible actually talks about that. It's very cool. I can't remember where it's one of the Psalms. It can't be an accident. So when he says this is a simple matter, see, I brought it back. It took me a little while. But this is a simple matter. I, I don't think we grasp truly how powerful God is. I mean, we know he's all-powerful, but what, what does all-powerful mean? He can control a universe that's roughly 15 billion light years across. He can hold it in the palm of his hand. That's power. And doing so isn't an effort for him. That's power. That's our God. The next morning, during the morning grain offering, uh, the water showed up. Verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. So right, they see the water. Looks like blood. They figure that Israel, Judah, and Edom had gone to war against each other the night before. And so they rush over thinking, well, we're just going to go, you know, pick the bodies clean and take all the treasure. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left the stones of Kir Hareseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Whoa! That escalated quickly. Um, Moab gets wiped out, right? They're destroying all the cities. They're... They're just demolishing, they're ruining the land, right? Every man as they pass by threw a rock in the field, which would make that land infertile. It would make it very, very difficult for them to ever plant there again. They stopped up the wells, so even if they could plant, now they don't have water. Uh, very, very, uh, uh, what's um, big, not big, um, Complete, very, very complete victory. Uh, except for this one city, Kir Hareseth, and it was built on a hill 
which made it difficult, which is why the stones were left intact. They actually couldn't tear it down. However, and I love this, um, the slingers flung stones uh, over the wall into the city to harass its inhabitants. So they couldn't tear down the city, so all the people who had slingshots just kept sitting there throwing stones over the wall. People getting knocked on the head, bouncing off their roof, right? I don't know. I imagine if they did that long enough, it would drive the people inside the city pretty crazy. In the midst of all of this, the king, in a desperate attempt, takes 700 men to try to get to the king of Edom. He knows he can't get the king of Israel. He knows he can't get the king of Judah. Well, maybe at least I can kill the king of Edom, right? A little bit of revenge. When that doesn't work, he kills his own son, hangs him on a wall, and sets him on fire. That is mind-boggling to me. Apparently, and this was not uncommon, um, it happened in a Greek myth too, and now I don't remember the name. You might remember, but they were, the Greek king had his armada, there was no wind, and it was because he thought the goddess of the ocean was angry with him, so he killed his daughter, threw her in the ocean, and the wind started to blow, right? And, and this was in a Greek myth, but I, I can't remember the names. It was during something. Thank you, Hannah. It, she said, I think it was during the Trojan War. Sure, why not? Uh, but this caused great indignation against Israel. And, and what that means is that the people of Moab were angry with Israel for so thoroughly defeating their king that he felt he had to take that extreme measure to try and win the battle. Uh, a little later on in history, during the Crusades, the Crusaders built a fortress um, on Kir Hariseth because it was such an easily defensible position. Chapter 4. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into the, all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. So really interesting. Um, back at that time, and, you know, my children should be thankful that you can't do this anymore, uh, you could pledge your kids as collateral for a loan. You know, you figure, well, I'll take the money out, and then I don't repay it, and now I don't, don't got to deal with the kids either. Uh, I'm sure that was not his attitude, because he feared God. Um, but he died. The creditor wanted the sons, which was legal. And we see the miraculous provision of the oil. So the widow not only can settle her debts, but so that she can, her and her sons can then live on it. So this would have been a very, very large amount. Imagine for a moment what would have happened if she'd gathered 
one other jar. Well, he told me to gather vessels. I don't really think anything's going to happen. He goes to a neighbor. Hey, can I have an extra jar? Sure, here. Poured, filled one jar. What would she have done? Now imagine what would have happened if she would have gathered more. Because the oil didn't cease until she ran out of jars. Now you take that for what you want. But I think it's a, it's a picture of faith. Gathering a lot of jars was evidence that she believed something was going to happen. It's similar to the situation with Elijah and the widow who he asked to make him a cake, if you remember that. Um, and I just love the fact that God is not limited in any way. But we already went off on that tangent, so I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a noble, a notable woman, sorry, a notable woman. And she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please, let's make a small upper room on the wall. Let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and he lay down there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite woman. When he called her, she stood before him and he said to her, say now to her, look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people, which is another way of saying, no, I'm good. Don't worry about it. So he said to her, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and she married an old man. Aha. So he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace his son. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. That's awesome, isn't it? Verse 18, the child grew, and it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Ooh, what a statement. Imagine having that kind of faith wasn't that he was sick and she was hoping to get Elisha back there before he died. The kid died on her lap. I'm going to go see the prophet. Why? It's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Just get me a donkey. I got to go. Oh, beautiful faith. So she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? So Gehazi gets there and she answers, It is well. Again, is she lying or does she just believe? Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet 
Gehazi came near and tried to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. That's really interesting. We're going to come back to that. So she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. If anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not wakened. And Elisha came into the house. There was the child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to Jehovah. And he went up and he lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child. And the flesh of the child became warm. And he returned, walked back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself out on him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came into him, she said, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. Such an incredible story, right? This, this person just offering this wonderful care to uh, Elisha, builds him basically his own bedroom, says, what do you, Elisha asks, what do you need? She says, nothing. He goes, and the Gehazi goes, well, she doesn't have a kid. He goes, fine, you'll have a son. No, no, don't lie to me, don't lie to me. Kid's born, probably 10, 12 years go by. Kids out in the field, hanging out with dad at work. Yeah, my head hurts. My guess, because I'm not that kind of doctor, um, is probably like an aneurysm, something like that. Uh, um, that, you know, because that'll, that'll kill you pretty quick. And gets sent back. He dies. The woman takes off to see Elisha. Now, is everything okay? Everything's okay. And then when she gets there, she grabs a hold of Elisha. And in that moment, Elisha recognized that something was wrong. But not just that there was something wrong, but that the Lord hadn't told him what it was. Elisha was surprised that God hadn't spoken to him. I don't know about you. I'm always a little surprised when he does speak to me. But I love that relationship and that example that Elisha gives. So when he finds out, he sends his servant, but the woman says no. So he goes with her, prays to Jehovah, lays on the boy, walks around the house, does it again, and the kid sneezes seven times. We know seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. Um, so I don't think it's a coincidence that the kid sneezed seven times. But I'm, I can't explain any better than that. Remember, though, Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and here we see that power, the power of God's spirit at work in him. Verse 38. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. Remember, we talked about the schools of the prophets last week, um, so that the, the, the widow with the oil, her husband was part of the school of the prophets, and here we have it again. Um, the sons of the prophets, that's who they were speaking about, sitting before him. And he said to his servant, put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So he went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. 
And they served it to the men to eat, and it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And he said, Bring some flour. And he put it in the pot and said, Serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. So apparently, being a prophet of God in Israel at this time meant you were also a chef. Um, there is death in the pot, whatever these gourds were that were gathered. Um, either they were inedible or they realized they were poisonous in some way. And so Elijah says, throw some flour in there and everything's fine. I like that. Something I think is interesting is that we just saw God use Elisha to raise the dead. And here we see God use Elisha to make the stew taste better. Both were miracles. And seeing God do the miraculous is always exciting and wonderful, but I think we often miss the miraculous things God does because we do not look for it in the practical things in our day-to-day lives. I've met so many people over, over the years of being a Christian and a pastor who have said, oh, I just want to see God do a miracle. I'm like, are you saved? Well, yeah, I'm saved. I said, well, you've experienced the greatest miracle God has ever done. Oh, well, but you know what I mean? I want to see him raise the dead. I'm like, he did. Because once you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Christ. Well, you don't don't get what I mean. I want to see him open the eyes of the blind. Well, yeah, once you were blind to your condition, now you can see the truth and you've been set free. I could keep going, but I'm going to stop. Because the whole point is, and don't get me wrong, I would love to see somebody raised from the dead. I think that would be really cool. And I know people who said they've seen it. Awesome. Good for you. But if we don't think God works a miracle unless someone's raised from the dead, then we're going to miss thousands and thousands of miracles that he is doing in our lives constantly. Verse 42. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? And you have to keep in mind, right? You think if you have 20 loaves of bread, right? That's probably enough to give three, four slices of bread to 100 guys, right? But that's not what the cats, you know, their loaves weren't what we think of as a loaf of bread. Do you know what I miss? I love Hawaiian bread, the Hawaiian sweet rolls. But do you remember when they used to make the loaf, the, the, the dome, the dome of Hawaiian bread? And you, you buy it and half of it was gone by the time you got home. And the other half of it was gone by the time the groceries were put away because it was just that good. I miss those. I, don't, I can never find them anymore. But it would be in a little loaf. <laughs> the point I'm getting at. It was a small, not what we think of as a loaf of bread. And I love this. Give it to the people, Elisha says, that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the world, word sorry, of the Lord. So God uses Elisha for another instance of miraculous provision. This man comes to Elijah, brings him food. It wasn't enough. He says, give it away. It'll be fine. And um, it's quite reminiscent of John, or sorry, John, of Jesus Uh, feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000 in Matthew 14 and Matthew 15. In both cases, the servants of the master 
right? The disciples looked at Jesus and go, we don't have enough. We can't do this. We don't have enough food for them. And Gehazi looked at Elisha and go, this isn't enough bread. We can't feed all these people. And in both instances, uh, the master, Elisha, looks at his servant and goes, just set it before him. We'll be fine. And Jesus goes, you got, you got a couple loaves and a few fish? Great. That'll be enough. Right? Oh, God is so good. Over the next couple weeks, we won't have Wednesday. We made it to chapter, and I, you guys were thinking when we got done with chapter three, no way we're getting to chapter four. But chapter four is a lot of, just a lot of narrative. Um, no Wednesday nights for the next two weeks. Don't forget this Sunday morning. Well, some of you won't, none of you, oh, geez, slackers. But <laughs> fine, I'll eat your bacon. Um, but for those who are going to be here Sunday morning, we have uh, breakfast at 830 uh, with our Christmas Eve service at 10 a.m. And um, yeah, I'm pretty stoked. When we come back, um, so it won't be next Wednesday, it won't be the following Wednesday, uh, first, second, third, it'll be January 10th. Does that sound right? Yep. Uh, when we come back to Wednesday nights on January 10th, we'll pick up in chapter 5, and we get to see another really cool thing. Uh, Naaman, a foreign military commander who comes to Elisha to be healed of leprosy. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes because he goes to the king of Israel and says, um, I was told you could heal me of leprosy. And the guy's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And someone says, no, go get Elisha. Elisha can do it. Elisha can do it. Uh, that's for next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy to each of us. I pray, God, uh, in this season, as we, we look and think about the wonderful work you're doing in each of our lives, in our church, in our city, our community, in our families, help us, Father, to not miss the miracles that you are doing constantly. I pray, Father, that you would watch over us, be with those who are traveling, uh, keep them safe. May their travels go well. No, Lord, no, no delayed planes, no issues of that sort. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you'd help it feel like Christmas for me and anybody else who's feeling that way. And we just give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.